provide you with one right now so you can follow along with us. Acts 19, and we are going to start uh, in verse 8 and read on down through the end of the chapter. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little dispute concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. 
And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as the word goes forth this morning, that you would strengthen Steve as he preaches it. Father, give him strength and give him guidance. But Father, I pray that not only would the preaching be guided, but I pray that our listening would be guided, that we would be expository listeners this morning, listening to the word, feeding upon the word, and believing the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Deemer. Well, guys, as you can tell, I do not have much of a voice today. I'm going to keep my water nice and close and handy. I apologize. Um, those of you who have known me for a amount of time know that this is that time of year that this happens. Goes. Um, so um, I am on performance-enhancing drugs this morning, just to let everyone know. Um, so if I get called before Congress in a few years and they play the sermon from January 8th of 2012 and want to know if I was on performance-enhancing drugs, I was. So, <clears throat> But anyway, so I beg for your patience this morning and hopefully you can hear what I'm trying to say this morning. And actually, uh, Anthony's struggling with it too this morning with, with, uh, with the cold too. And I appreciate you guys for, um, for giving us uh, just your gifts and talents this morning in worship. We appreciate it very much. Um, you guys know me. When I um, was living in Ecuador, I used to play soccer, and I played for my high school team, uh, Alliance Academy. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I actually played goalkeeper, and if you know anything about soccer, you look at me and you say, well, you're a pretty short goalkeeper, and yes, that was the case. But uh, I played anyway, and I, I wasn't too bad. But our, our team was, was so-so in high school, and I remember my senior year, we played a, a lot of different schools, a lot of different teams, and we hung with most, most of the teams, some of the best high schools in Quito. We, we were able to hang with them, and uh, we even played an all-star team that was actually a, a visiting team from, from the United States, which was an all-star team made up of a bunch of high schools here in the United States, and we beat that team in, in a penalty kick shootout. And, and I don't know what our coach was thinking, but he decided to schedule us a game against a team called El Nacional. Now, in Ecuador, you've got to understand the way soccer works in these uh, foreign countries. And that is the professional teams have a feeder system. 
They have a system of younger teams that feed into the professional team. So there will be the, the, the name of the professional team. They will have an under-20 team, an under-17 team, an under-10 team, and whatever. And so they try to identify these kids from a very young age who they think will eventually be in the senior team to go ahead and start prepping them. So they pick the best kids they can find from not only around the city but around the country. And our coach thought it would be a good idea for us to play against this one of the under-17 team of some of the best talent in the country. And so we played El Nacional that day. And um, all I remember was the ball was rarely outside of my box. And we lost the game. And if you know soccer, this doesn't sound like a soccer score. We lost the game 21 to nothing. I'm not even sure we ever, ever got the ball beyond the midfield. It was an onslaught. We felt powerless against this indomitable force that was coming at us. These guys were so good. They were kicking the ball and making it move in ways I had never seen a soccer ball move before. And they were just doing some, some amazing things, and they were unstoppable. And I thought about that story this morning as I was thinking about where we finished up in, in, in the book of Ephesians with Deemer doing a, a phenomenal three-part series on that last portion of Ephesians about spiritual warfare. And I particularly remember what Deemer talked about when he, when he reminded us that the, that term that Jesus mentions about the gates of hell not prevailing against God's church, against the church of Christ, that is talking about the church being on offense. And those gates of hell are like me in that goal. It's an onslaught. God's kingdom is moving forward and it's prevailing and it's going to prevail. It's unstoppable. His word is unstoppable. And so that's where we finished in the book of Ephesians. And today we're jumping back into a series, believe it or not, that we actually began in 2009. It was that long ago that we started going through the book of Acts. We're jumping back into He Reigns, which is the title for our series through the book of Acts. And hopefully we're going to finish it here in the first six months of 2012. Now we've taken a few breaks, including the break we took last year to go through the book of Ephesians because Deemer and I, after prayer and, and really thinking through the word and what our church was going through at the time, felt that Ephesians was where we needed to be. And I believe God confirmed that as we went through the book of Ephesians and I, I personally was edified tremendously just going through that book. But we finished Ephesians with this, this topic of spiritual warfare. And it was a great segue to go back into Acts because in Acts 19, where we left off, Paul is in the city of Ephesus. So actually, the book of Ephesians that we just finished studying was written after the events that are recorded here in this text that Deemer read this morning. So the Paul, Paul is getting the church in Ephesus going. Now, by way of reminder, if you remember back in chapter 18, that Paul <coughs> actually began to plant the church in Ephesus after a lengthy and successful stay in Corinth. Paul was on his way back to his home city of Antioch, and he stops off in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. He goes and reasons into, in the synagogue for a little while, and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there to get the church started in Ephesus, and he heads back to the city of Antioch for a period of time 
where he's going to be there and get refreshed before he goes on his third missionary journey. Now, while Priscilla and Aquila were in Ephesus, if you'll remember, they run into a guy by the name of Apollos. And they helped kind of correct Apollos' uh, theology a bit. And we learned a lot just by the way they corrected Apollos' theology. And it's helpful to us to know how we intervene with one another when theology may be a little bit off or things might be a little bit inconsistent with the Scripture. So Paul, after Priscilla and Aquila have got the church going in Ephesus, he begins his third missionary journey. He goes back through Galatia and Phrygia. And then he comes to Ephesus in chapter 19. If you'll remember, when he arrived in Ephesus at the beginning of chapter 19, he runs into 12 guys who were disciples of John the Baptist. And they were very confused in their theology. Matter of fact, I don't think they were saved because they didn't understand what it meant to be truly baptized like what we saw happen here this morning. They had been baptized by John, a baptism of, of repentance of sins, but they had not been baptized into Christ. And so Paul explains the gospel to them. They're baptized into Christ. He lays their hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit in a manner similar to the day of Pentecost as a confirmation that, yes, God's Spirit was upon them and that they had received truly the gospel message. So now Paul is back in Ephesus. Now, he's in Ephesus, and in Ephesus in many ways is the spiritual or religious capital of this region of the Roman Empire. There are three major cities in this region. There is Corinth, which is the commercial capital. That's where most of the, 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 the selling and the buying is going on. That was a major crossroads. There is Athens, which was the philosophical center. And then there's Ephesus, which was the spiritual or religious center. It too was a commercial uh, hub, but not nearly as big as Corinth. These were very important cities to Paul. And he evangelized these cities. And in the evangelization of these cities, he therefore evangelized the region. Ephesus was the home of the temple to the goddess Artemis, as we read here this morning. It was the Roman god Diana. It was one of the largest man-made structures of the ancient world. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was at the very center of this city. The commercial life, social life. Spiritual life all revolved around this temple. It was an object of civic pride. To be an Ephesian was to be a worshiper of Artemis. To be an Ephesian was to be a, a, a citizen of the city that was charged with keeping the temple of Artemis. It was a matter of pride. Now, if you remember, what we studied last week was written to the Ephesians after the things that Luke records for us here in Acts 19. So to these Ephesian believers, some of whom were actually probably dragged into that riot that Demer read about here in Acts chapter 19, and were facing potential bloodbath until a level-headed Roman town clerk stepped in, it was to some of these people that Paul wrote these words in Ephesians 6:12: We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's easy to say, but it's much more difficult to understand when there's actual flesh and blood beating you up and dragging you before others who want to beat you up. But it was to these Ephesians who had experienced this riot that Paul wrote those words. Our battle is not against these rioters. Underneath a greedy silversmith and plotting craftsman, behind a frenzied crowd, 
at the heart of the angry, bloodthirsty mob was something much more sinister, something not made of flesh and blood, something from another realm, from a darkness that lies beyond. Underneath it all were spiritual forces, spiritual powers, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these Ephesians, to whom Paul writes the book of Ephesians, or the epistle to the Ephesians, they knew about this spiritual realm because they had heard or had witnessed even an incident with these guys called the seven sons of Shiva. In chapter 19, verses 11 through 20, as Dima read, we have this Strange story about seven boys of some guy named Shiva who apparently claimed to be a Jewish high priest. Now there's no record ever of a Jewish high priest named Shiva. But we have this guy claiming to be a Jewish high priest. Either he was from a high priestly family or he just claimed that title because it was impressive in the city of Ephesus. But these guys were itinerant Jewish exorcists. Meaning they went around making money doing exorcisms. They were hucksters. They were peddlers of supernatural phenomenons, con artists. Today they'd have their own TV show on a Christian network probably. They had heard about some very unusual things that God had been doing through Paul. And they decided they wanted to get in on that action. So they attempted an exorcism in the name of the guy that Paul was using. It was common in those days to, to call up or to call upon the name of one spiritual being to defeat another spiritual being. It was a very common practice. So they, they hear Paul speaking in the name of Jesus, and they say, well, let's use that Jesus name. Now, as a parenthetical note, this is the only place in all of Scripture where we have the word exorcism or exorcist used. And it's used in a very negative way. We do see Jesus and the apostles, and only Jesus and the apostles, casting out demons but never is the church ever called or told to perform exorcisms. Instead, we have this one use of the word. And what we have here is a foolish attempt by some foolish men to use the name of Jesus as a gimmick for their own gain. Well, the name of Jesus is no gimmick. When the evil spirit sees Sceva's boys trying to pull off their shenanigans, he says this. Jesus, I know. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that the Evil spirits that were in people, they knew exactly who Jesus was. Matter of fact, the only gospel that I've actually done this with was the gospel of Mark, but you can do it with all the gospels. In the gospel of Mark, I sat there and counted how many times that the, that the demons recognized Jesus before Peter finally confesses Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. And in Mark, I believe it happens five times. So five times before the disciples Peter, at least, clue in to who Jesus is and profess it. The, 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 the demons are already saying, depart from here. Get away from us, son of the most high. We know who you are, Jesus. We know what you're here to do. The demons always know this Jesus name. They know who he is. And then the demon says, and Paul I recognize. And the only reason they recognize Paul is because Paul had been given apostolic authority to cast out demons. They knew Paul because Paul had been commissioned by Christ to carry out this ministry. That's why they knew Paul. 
I've heard people preach this text before like this, do the demons know your name? Like if you're good enough, if you're a good enough, strong enough, powerful enough Christian, the demons are going to know your name. You miss the whole point of this text if that's what you think Luke is trying to teach us. What Luke is trying to teach us is there's only one name, one name alone that makes the demons tremble. That's the name of Jesus Christ. And the only people that have the power to proclaim that Jesus Christ are those in whom the Spirit resides, whom Jesus has given the authority to proclaim his name. In this case, apostolic authority was given to Paul to cast out demons. And then he looks at these seven boys of Sceva and he says, but who are you? And then the demon proceeds to give these guys a serious beat down to the point that he beats the clothes off of them. So these Ephesian believers, they understood rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So much so that the people, the people there in Ephesus, turned to Christ and began to confess their evil practices and repent. Remember, Ephesus was the spiritual capital of the region. The practice of the occult was everywhere. And in so many people's lives in Ephesus. It's the same way today. There are places in our world that are more like centers or hubs for occultic practices. Back when we lived in Arkansas, it was Eureka Springs, Arkansas. It's something about occultic practices. I think, Peter, you mentioned this to me. They like to be, do it in the mountains for whatever reason. And in, in the Eureka Springs, there was just a lot of stuff that went on up there. And a lot of weird things going on. And so in our world today, we have little hubs of spiritual warfare where the occult seems to take root. So the people turned to Christ in Ephesus. They repented their practices. They started a nice little bonfire from all their books. Okay? It was a, not a small bonfire. It was a big bonfire. Matter of fact, they burnt so many books. It says here that they spent, or they burnt books that, that equaled up to, what did it say here? Um... 50,000 pieces of silver, that's the equivalent to about $4 million. $4 million worth of books were thrown into a fire and burned because these people's lives had been radically transformed and it changed the way they valued things and the way they spent their money, which eventually affected the economy of Ephesus, which led to the riot. Spiritual warfare. Now, what got the Sceva boys so excited was that they had heard this. They had heard in verse 11, it says this, that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Now that, my friends, is some strange, strange stuff. And I want you to focus on one word. The word Extraordinary. These were extraordinary miracles. Literally, it reads this. And God was doing miracles not of the ordinary kind by the hands of Paul. These things that were happening were really weird, were really strange. They were really odd. These miracles, these were not even normal miracles. These were extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. God had decided to confirm the gospel message that Paul had been preaching by granting that even handkerchiefs and aprons, probably garments that Paul used in his tent-making business, that the power of God for healing diseases and casting out spirits 
would manifest itself when these things were touched. Now that's awfully strange. And Luke notes that. That's why he says these are extraordinary miracles. This was not normal, nor is it to be understood by us today to be normal. Instead, God was using extraordinary means to confirm his glorious gospel message in a city that was filled with satanic, dark, superstitious, occult practices. In this city, in particular, such extraordinary means got the attention of the people. Now, Paul was an apostle, and the apostles in particular had been given special supernatural giftedness by the Holy Spirit to perform miracles and extraordinary miracles in order to confirm the gospel message. God can and does still do miracles today. I'm not a strict cessationist. But the confirming miracles that were necessary as the gospel first began to spread are no longer needed and thus are not to be expected because we have the confirmed apostolic teaching preserved right here for us in this book. We do not need supernatural confirmation anymore. So if someone stands up and preaches a word, you don't confirm it by saying, okay, do a sign. You confirm it by saying, does it square with this? Because this has already been confirmed. That's the era we live in today. Besides that, we know that the Christian means for conducting spiritual warfare was not in sweat-filled hankies. How do we know it? Because of Ephesians 6. Right? Paul doesn't tell us to go get hankies and aprons and, and have them blessed by some pastor or some guy that calls himself an apostle. No. We are never told to do spiritual warfare that way. Instead, we are told to put on the full armor of God. Remember, this was written after these events. Paul could have easily said, hey, you want to fight spiritual warfare? Go get your pastor to sweat on a hanky and take that. Do some warfare with it. He doesn't even get close to that in Ephesians. He says, put on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Take up the shield of faith. Put on the helmet of salvation. Make sure your feet are fitted with the gospel message of peace. Take up that sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and pray. Prayer, excuse me, prayed up, word-saturated, gospel-proclaiming, Christ-exalting, Christian-living is the way we carry out spiritual warfare. It's that simple. Let me say it again. Prayed up, word-saturated, gospel-proclaiming, Christ-exalting, Christian-living is the means by which we carry out spiritual warfare. That's what the armor's all about. That's what Deemer spent three weeks talking about. It's that simple. That's what Satan hates. Satan doesn't mind sons of Sceva. Satan trembles at the sons of God doing the righteous work of God, living in the power of the Spirit of God through constant meditation on the Word of God for the glory of the Son of God in whom we have hope because of the Gospel of God. That gets Satan and the gates of hell trembling because the army of the living God is on its way. That is what spiritual warfare is all about. So look at this text what began to turn the city upside down? Was it apostolic, sweat-soaked hankies? No. It was Christians acting out their Christianity. 
It was people whose lives were radically transformed. People who had been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in a newness of life. The old was gone and the new had come. It was new creations living like new creations. And they had begun to live so differently that the economy of the whole city of Ephesus was affected, leading to Demetrius and the other craftsmen prime concern that their businesses were going to be in decline. When Christians live out the transformation they proclaim, it changes the way we live and the world takes notice. The world will only take us seriously when they see the transformation. Our primary means for turning our community, our state, our nation upside down for Christ is not political action or blogs decrying the state of things or what have you. It's Christians living out their Christianity. It's radically transformed people living radically Christ-centered lives. So much so that it changes everything from the way we spend our money to the way we spend our time and the unbelieving world notices and gets upset about it. That's spiritual warfare. That's what needs to be happening in our world. So it's not these extraordinary means that transformed Ephesus. It was, well, what we might consider the pretty ordinary word of God. I say ordinary. I'm just joking. When I, well, I don't mean that this book is ordinary because this is an extraordinary book. What I mean is that Oftentimes, we're looking for something spectacular, and we're ignoring the most spectacular thing, which is right here, this word that we have. Verse 20 is the key verse in this whole text. It says, so the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, continued to increase and prevail mightily. It was growing. It was increasing. It was unstoppable. So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth, says Isaiah the Lord speaking through Isaiah, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose it and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It was prevailing. It was winning. The gates of hell were not prevailing. The word of God was prevailing. The spiritual forces of darkness were no match for the word of God. The dark forces of the demonic realm were no match for this book right here that we have, this apostolic word. The demonic realm was like, well, have you watched any football games? Did you watch poor Clemson play West Virginia? If you watched that game, poor Clemson gave up 70 points. And you just watched the game and they just couldn't stop Clemson. And Clemson just kind of like me sitting in the goal playing against El Nacional, which is getting whooped. And that's what's happening here. The word of God is prevailing. Boom. It's unstoppable. So, now let's go back to the beginning of this text. I've gone through it kind of backwards. It's a big chunk of text today. Let's get back to the beginning of the text we looked at starting in verse 8. I'm done with the introduction now. <laughs> let's get into verse 8. It says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. 
It was after this, this word of the Lord being proclaimed, that we see the extraordinary miracles. Again, let me remind you, that's the pattern in Acts. Word and wonder. Word and wonder. You never see a wonder apart from the word. Because the wonders were meant to confirm the word. That's just the pattern in Acts. If you see some guy out there claiming to do wonders, but you're not hearing a clear word being spoken that is consistent with this book, ignore that wonder and run the other direction. Because satanic forces can do wonders in this world as well. There are four things that really clearly jump out of the text to us here. They're not hard to see, so we're just going to go through these pretty quickly here. Here's the first thing I want us to see this morning. Go ahead and bring up my first slide because my clicker ain't working. The work of God happens when the people of God proclaim the word of God boldly. The work of God happens when the people of God proclaim the word of God boldly. Acts 19.8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. The word of God was not and is not and never will be a popular message. The world calls it foolishness according to Paul. Therefore the speaking of it and the heralding of it will require boldness. The word for speaking out boldly here in the Greek is in the imperfect tense, meaning it was a continual action, a continual thing Paul was doing. It wasn't just one day of the week that he was proclaiming boldly. He was doing it all the time. And we too are to always be proclaiming the word of God boldly. It was what the church together had been praying for. If you remember Acts 4, 29, after the first persecution began to break out against the church, this is what the church prayed. They said this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. It was what Paul asked the Ephesians right after his discussion of the armor of God to pray that God would grant him. Do you remember this? <coughs> Ephesians six nineteen, He's talking about pray. Also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to seek, speak. Part, excuse me, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. Part of our spiritual warfare is to pray for ourselves and for others that we might boldly speak the word of God. That is a key ingredient in the Ephesians 6 passage. Praying for each other to have boldness to speak the word of God. That's part of spiritual warfare. We should be praying for husbands to speak it boldly to their families. Mothers to speak it boldly to their children. Families to speak it boldly in their neighborhoods. Workers to speak it boldly to their co-workers. Each and every situation that we find ourselves in, we should be praying for each and every person in this church to speak the word of God forth boldly. Do you want to do some spiritual warfare? Pray for my boldness. Pray for Mark's boldness. Pray for Ross's boldness. Pray for these children's boldness with their friends. Those that are in public school, pray for their boldness. Pray for boldness. That's spiritual warfare. Boldness has less to do with our tone and how emphatic we are than it does with the courage to speak the word when we know it might not be received well or when we think the other person might think we're a quack or a Bible thumper if we speak it. 
Boldness is setting aside those things, knowing that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And a sound mind is important because secondly we see here, we go to our second point. Go ahead and bring it up for me, guys. The work of God happens when the people of God proclaim the word of God persuasively. Persuasively. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Reasoning here could be translated arguing, but the word reasoning really that we have here in the ESV is really a better word to capture what Paul is saying here. The Greek word is the word, it comes from the word dialegomai, which is where we get our English word for dialogue. Therefore, Paul was not just loudly lecturing and yelling and shouting the word. He was dialoguing. He was answering questions. He was making arguments. This requires that we turn our minds on, Christians. Christianity is not a religion that stands in opposition to good reason. No. It's consistent with reason because it's true. It's true. We are making a truth claim. Therefore, if this really is true, it is consistent with sound reason and can be cogently argued for. We are, after all, making a truth claim about the nature of the universe when we share the gospel. Christians need not fear intellectual interaction. We have the upper hand because we have the truth. We don't have to be afraid of an intellectual interaction with someone. We have the truth. Therefore, we've got hand up on them. Persuading. When he says persuading here, it means just that. Literally, the word in Greek means to convince by argument. Paul was convincing people of the truth and thus changing their minds by his argumentation. People were seeing that what he was saying was true and rational. And Paul was challenging their worldview and arguing that they embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is true and would radically change their lives. This was Paul's modus operandus, okay? He would go into a city, and it says here in multiple places we read in Athens and Corinth and in Ephesus that he reasoned and persuaded. And it was the fact that he was persuading people, changing their minds, that got him into trouble. In both Corinth and here in Ephesus, in Ephesus, Demetrius, he goes to the other workers, the other, um, the workmen or whatever they're called, craftsmen, and he says, this Paul is persuading people. And way back in Corinth, you remember the Jews took Paul before the proconsul? And they said, this guy's persuading people. That's what was getting him in trouble. Part of our Christian walk and our spiritual battle is to engage minds with good arguments. We don't turn off our minds. We look for good opportunities to engage people and challenge their worldview. This is why I still think that apologetics is a good and needed supplement to evangelism. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17 is often cited to me. If I get into an argument with someone about this particular topic, they might cite this. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. That's absolutely true. Okay, let's continue. 1 Corinthians 1 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now some will cite that passage and say we do not need to use intellectual arguments or apologetics, and I would disagree because I think this passage doesn't mean that we don't reason and persuade and convince with good arguments. It means that we don't use the wisdom of the world. After all, it was in Corinth, in Acts 18.4, that Paul said, it says that Paul was reasoning and persuading in the synagogue every Sabbath. We read here in 1 Corinthians simply that the wisdom of the world is foolishness. And therefore, we debate not with the wisdom of the world, but we debate with the wisdom of God that comes in the gospel. And although the world considers that foolish, it is consistent with everything that is true in the universe. And therefore, it is logically impenetrable, and it's cogent, and we can make good intellectual arguments. The world, however, is binded by its own wisdom, which is foolishness built upon Satan's lies. Thus, good reasoning and persuading is also spiritual warfare. That's why we put on the belt of truth. Truth. Because we have the truth. And we convince people. And then God does the converting. Our persuasive arguments don't convert a single soul. God converts. But we can still make persuasive arguments. We can't settle for simply take it or leave it. We present the truth with wisdom, with winsomeness, and in doing so, according to another passage also written to the church in Corinth, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take, thought, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now the next thing I want us to notice here in this text is that the work of God happens when the people of God proclaim the word of God Consistently. Bring my next point up, please. Consistently. It says this, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, Tyrannus was probably a local philosopher in the city of Ephesus. Or he may have been the, the landlord of that hall. Probably, though, he was a local philosopher. The word Tyrannus, the name means tyrant. I don't think his mama named him that. Probably his students did. Okay? Probably his nickname. Okay? I don't know. There may be some mamas that want to rename their kids Tyrant. I don't know. But in this case, this is probably this guy's nickname. He's probably a local philosopher. And Paul rents his hall out for a while. Now, another, another parenthetical note here. Because I, I, I can get on a soapbox with this one, okay? Because I'm being told some, by some books I read that having a church building is wrong. It's pagan to have a church building. What you needed to be doing is meeting in homes. Let me say something. The location matters not. What matters is whether or not we're proclaiming the Word of God. If we're doing it in a home, or we're doing it in a hall, or we're doing it in a building specifically built for a church, or we're doing it down at the Civic Center, it does not matter. What matters is whether or not the Word of God is being proclaimed. If I read one more book that tells me I'm a pagan because I have a church building, I'm going to puke. Because that doesn't make me pagan. What makes me pagan is if I forsake this book. The location has nothing to do... In Acts chapter 20, verse 20, we'll get there within the next year. 
In Acts 20, verse 20, we read that Paul not only preached publicly, but he also preached house to house. It's both and. It's both. But Paul did it daily. Your text, or you may see a footnote in your Bible, it says it was probably, or some manuscripts say it was from 11 to 4 o'clock, which was the normal siesta time for the culture then. So Paul probably would preach for about five hours every day, daily. And here we are. We've had our fill with 45 minutes on a Sunday once a week. We don't see the great work of God happening in our churches today because we don't have the hunger for the Word of God like we need to have it. It's quite simple. I'm praying through right now what we're going to do for small groups this year. I want you guys praying with me. We want to do some in homes, maybe do some here. But I'm also praying about how do we teach the Word of God more and more and more? I'm convicted when I read that Paul preached daily for five hours. But we don't want to inconvenience ourselves, we don't want to inconvenience our lifestyles. This is our spiritual food. This is our weapon for warfare, yet we eat little of it and we keep it in our sheaths too often. Studying the Word of God should be happening each and every day in our lives individually, in our homes as families, in our gatherings as brothers and sisters in Christ, in our churches corporately. It should be happening more frequently. We must sustain a a diet of the Word of God And I'm afraid we sustain a small diet compared to previous generations. Compared to times of great revival in this nation and in other nations, we hardly touch the Word of God. You go back and you look at when God has moved in mighty ways. The people had such hunger for the Word of God. They were in it all the time. That's what I want to see happen at Harbin's again. That's what I want to see happen in me. The Word of God. That's where the power was. That was what was beating down the gates of hell in Ephesus. Day by day, in halls and homes, faithful proclamation and teaching and listening to and study of the Word of God. When the Word of God is unleashed, we can expect to see the work of God accomplished. But it may take time. My final point. Go ahead and bring it up, guys. Final point this morning. The work of God happens when the people of God proclaim the Word of God Patiently, verse 10, it says, this continued for two years. We live in an instant results culture, don't we? Okay? Last night during the, during the debates that were going on, they were having instant polling results. Instant information. Ooh, this guy's in the lead now. Ooh, this guy's in the lead now. Oh, oh, instant information. Have you seen the commercials? I think it's AT&T. They say that was so 29 seconds ago, you know, and everything's instant. That's what we expect now. That's not consistent with the way God works a lot of times. Can he work instantly? Preach the word of God, boom, we got 300 people busting out of the seams here. Absolutely he could do that. But that's not the normal way I believe God works. We see in scripture and we see in other places we see in the testimony of great many churches throughout the history of the church that God doesn't always move at our speed. And because he doesn't move at our speed, sometimes we try to do some things to make up for it. You know, we can get some more people in here if we would just do X. 
or X or this. And therefore we settle for more entertainment models of church worship. And it gets results. We can fill this place a whole lot more quickly, I can guarantee you, if we would just succumb to doing things in a little bit different way. It won't take much. We have a lot of creative minds in this room. We can sit together and have a creative brain session and come up with a lot of very creative ways to just get people in the door. Well, a lot of people will say, well, at least you got them in the door, right? Of course, I think we all know from experience, you'll find out pretty quickly that whatever you get people with, you've got to keep them with. And if you begin to break away from an entertainment model and try to get to a more steady diet of this, the numbers will just start going away again. It's really that simple. If I have to choose between low numbers and steady, healthy, consistent Word of God versus big numbers and a boatload of fun things we can do on a Sunday morning, I choose the former. Because that's what Paul chose. I'm convinced that true gospel work is hard, long, patience trying, endurance building, perseverance dependent work. It is not for the faint of heart. It is not for the impatient. It is not for those who quickly fall into a state of ill contentment when the going gets tough. In all, we learn later in Acts chapter 20 that Paul was in Ephesus about three years. And then he ends up getting run out of town in a riot. But that riot was the evidence that God had been at work because the word of God had taken root into the hearts of people and it changed people's lives so radically that it couldn't go unnoticed and it affected the whole city. You see, we determine success by how well things go. The success barometer in here in Ephesus was how bad things went. The fact that there was a riot was the evidence that the gospel had taken root. That flips our mind upside down, doesn't it? Because we like to think about how good things are. Ask some of our brothers and sisters across this globe that at this very moment are suffering horrible pain at the hands of persecutors. Ask them about results. That riot couldn't stop the fact that the word of God was spreading like wildfire. It says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of God, the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The word of God was increasing and prevailing mightily. This is my prayer for Harbins in 2012, that the word of God might increase and prevail mightily in our church, in our homes, in our lives, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our neighboring cities. And that the work of God will happen as we, the people of God, proclaim the word of God boldly, persuasively, consistently, and patiently. Because, just like me standing in that goal, watching these very, very talented soccer players kick the ball at me at extremely fast speeds, The gates of hell will not prevail against the word of God if we will stick to it. That's my prayer for Harbins in 2012. 
the Word of God does the work of God. But my plea this morning to you as we close is that that Word of God <coughs> and that work of God, it happens with the people of God. And if you're here this morning and you, well, maybe you're a churchgoer and maybe you, you like the idea of Christianity, it's a plausible argument, but your life has never been radically transformed by the Word of God, then, my friends, you're not part of the people of God. If your life hasn't been transformed in the way that the Ephesians were transformed, to where their very appetites changed, and they were throwing those old things onto the fire, if there hasn't been an experience in your life, and I use the word experience cautiously, but if there hasn't been an experience in your life where the Word of God has taken hold in such a way that the things you loved before you no longer love and you have such a passion now for Christ and for the Gospel that it changes everything, then I beg you this morning, don't go any further than this morning. Come and speak to me or Deem or one of the men here and, and talk about what that means. How do, you, how do you enter into a relationship with Christ? What is, it, what is this Gospel message? This, this is the fact that Jesus has come and, and that he, on a cross, bore the sins of all those who had put their hope in him. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be good. You don't have to check off a list. All that you have to do is put all of your hope, all of your weight, all of who you are in Jesus Christ alone. And in him alone you put your hope. And when you do that, he has forgiven your sins and he's done something even more glorious than that, he has given you his own righteousness and holiness so that you can stand before God, redeemed, a child of God. That's my prayer for you this morning. If you're here and you've never seen that transformation happen that we've talked about in Ephesus, let's bow our heads now. <coughs> let's pray the last few intact vocal cords I have. Let's pray. And then we're going to let the guys close us with song. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we praise your holy name. Oh, our only hope is in you, Jesus. Oh God, our hope is not, is not that we are somehow good enough. We're not like those stinking Ephesians. We don't worship the devil. We're not like those sons of Sceva. We're not manipulators and con artists. Oh, Jesus, if there's any thought of that in here, help anyone who's thinking that this morning to see the truth that we are totally, totally depraved, sinners corrupt to the very core, separated from a holy God, no matter how good the world might call us or that we might think we are. God, may we come this morning and put all our hope in Christ. Our hope for a year of gospel-centered, word-centered life here at Harbin's is also in Christ alone. Oh, Father, keep us, Jesus, keep us from hearing a sermon like this and thinking, yeah, let's just come up with a bunch of Bible studies. Instead, cause us to fall on our knees and say, Jesus, apart from you and your spirit working in this church, we can't even have an appetite for the word. So come, Lord Jesus, save those who need to be saved 
sanctify those of us who continue to need sanctification. Take this church where you want it to be in 2012 and beyond. And we will speak by the grace of God and only by the grace of God. We will speak boldly and we will speak persuasively and we will speak consistently and we will speak patiently the word of the living God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we ask this in the name of our only hope, in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please stand, if you would, as they close us in one song and have this time of response to bring your offerings, prayer requests, <coughs> or whatever else God might be laying upon your heart.